Greetings, bird nerds. I'm Joy Klump, certified Texas Master Naturalist, and I am your host for our first official episode of Birding Joy. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're just going to dive into a little bit of an introduction to birding. And so if you're new to the hobby or you wanted to dip your toes in the water, so to speak, this episode is for you. So grab your beverage of choice, find a comfy seat, and let's dive in to Intro to Birding. Well, hello. Thank you so much for being here. Happy day to you whatever day that may be that you're listening to this program. I am super excited that you're joining me on this episode to talk about a basic introduction into birding. If you know anything about me, it's that I am extremely passionate about sharing the joys of birding. And I wanted to include an episode that discusses just the basics about birding. I want to reach an audience of individuals that maybe you're too nervous to go to a class. Maybe right now you're just not sure that you even want to invest in this hobby. And so this gives you an opportunity to just kind of sit back and chill and listen to some details about it and make your decision and go from there. I hope that by the end of this episode, you are a little bit more inclined to give it a go and see where it takes you. So in today's episode, I want to talk about, first of all, birding ethics. I feel like that that is an important aspect of birding that isn't always focused on or reinforced, especially with new birders. We're going to go over a few little details about the code of ethics. I also want to talk to you briefly about ornotherapy. As a new birder, I want to be sure you are exposed to that as a possible inclusion in your birding knowledge. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Then I'm going to get into the meat of the presentation to give you a few few details about just some basic, basic ID characteristics to look for. And we'll talk about field guides and, and apps. So let's dig in, shall we? Starting off with uh, discussing birding ethics, you know, it's it's all well and good to go out into nature and, and enjoy this, but if we don't take responsibility for ourselves and our actions and be an advocate for, you know, birds or nature, wildlife in general, then ultimately we're not going to end up having anything to appreciate or enjoy. So code of ethics is, is pretty important. There's three of them. This is according to the American Birding Association's code of ethics. And the first one is respect and promote birds and their environment. So this basically means be conscientious of what's going on around. Like if you're just in your backyard, make sure that you're limiting threats to birds. Create a bird-friendly habitat just in your own little backyard. Limit access that domestic cats might have to your backyard. Make sure your feeders are clean, sterile, that the food is not moldy, that they have clean water, they have places that they can create shelter out of. And you don't have to put birdhouses up to create that shelter. Just even the way that you plant your vegetation can actually create great shelter for birds. Also, you want to be conscientious of window strikes and ensuring that you limit the birds striking your window. So if if you've seen that you've had that as a problem in the past, there's lots of different options out there for you to try to limit the window strikes. Window strikes as well as domestic cats, those are the two biggest contributing factors to bird mortality. Those are big threats to help eliminate. 
Avoid stressing birds out when using bird recordings. Try to limit those when you're out and about or maybe use uh, headphones so that it's not playing over your speaker on your phone. This can actually affect birds, especially during migration season. And so you really want to limit uh, the the exposure that birds are, are hearing those calls. Next code of ethic is respect and promote the birding community and its individual members. Respect the interests and rights and skill levels of your fellow birders. This is a big one to me because at some point in time, I had some individual that made me feel completely low about myself because of my knowledge or lack thereof. Even all of these very well-established birders and ornithologists, they started somewhere. They had a beginning. They didn't just pop out of their mother's womb and have all of this knowledge. They learned it over time. So we all have a starting point. It's important to remember that when you're out and about. And nobody likes trying to learn something new and have somebody come and immediately like put them down or make them feel like an idiot because they didn't know what a bird was. That's a teaching moment as far as I'm concerned. If they don't know what a northern mockingbird is, uh, by the way, that is Texas's state bird, um, then take the time to teach them. Like, how do you know that's a northern mockingbird? Give them the ID characteristics. Let them practice IDing that. It's a great teaching moment. Share your bird observations freely. This is not only just by way of posting things on maybe Facebook groups or uploading to a platform called eBird, which I'll go into a little bit later. But, you know, be be open about that. You know, sometimes <laughs> birds get so um, funny about sharing that information. And it's just, I don't know, I, I find it, I find it a little ridiculous. Although there are some cases where protecting that information might be beneficial if the bird is an endangered bird. The locations of whooping crane sightings can sometimes be protected because they don't want individuals going out there and stressing those birds out. So there are times when, you know, being a little bit more protective of announcing that there's a certain bird, it might actually be to the bird's favor. But for the most part, don't have that attitude of, well, I'm just going to keep this bird to myself and I'm not going to tell anybody. You know, think about the fact that there are is scientific data that is pulled and drawn from uh, these observations. And so the more the information that you can share, the fuller that data is going to be. Last ethic is respect and promote the law and the rights of others. Great example of this one is a few years ago, there was a hawk owl that was sighted in Washington state and all of these people clamored around to get a look at this at this bird, which was considered a rare sighting. Well, it just so happened that this bird was on someone's private property. And over the course of many days, the homeowner was getting quite agitated by all of these people showing up wanting to look at this bird. Now, while the birders were on public property and not getting onto private property. They were still taking photos and videos and doing all sorts of things that made the homeowner uncomfortable. So the homeowner basically said, look, I don't mind you observing this bird, but please refrain from doing X, Y, and Z. He basically just didn't want his home recorded or photographed. And, you know, I kind of understand because that's your private residence. So I get it. But apparently the people didn't really listen and didn't respect his wishes. 
And one day they were met with a shock because the bird was dead and hanging upside down in the tree. There is still an investigation going on as far as I know about what really happened, but you know, make your own conclusions there. You know, it really opened the eyes of the birding community to have to think about, you know, did we cause the demise of this bird out of our own selfishness or lack of respecting someone else's rights? It was a hard lesson to learn, I think, but it's very important to remember to respect the rights of others, their private property. Always, always make sure that you have the permission of an individual before you go on to their private property. Let's talk a little bit about ornotherapy. As I said in the beginning, I don't want to go into a lot of detail because I actually have a whole episode on just on ornotherapy. The basic concept of ornotherapy is that, you know, we need nature. It's been a scientific proven fact that when you spend time outdoors, it's a health benefit. It reduces stress. It gives you clarity. It helps to kind of ground you. So we definitely need that time to connect with nature. Practicing ornotherapy is basically just being a more mindful birder. It's taking away that temptation to just make it all about birding lists or the competition of birding and just really being in that moment, being present. And I think when you can be a more mindful birder, it actually helps to create a more meaningful interaction with nature. One great thing about practicing ornotherapy is anybody can do this. You don't even need a birding experience to do it. You don't need to know what the birds are that you're looking at. This is something that young and old can do, experienced or not experienced individuals. There is a book called Ornotherapy. It's full of wonderful explorations, meditations, and journaling exercises that kind of help just guide you in that process of practicing ornotherapy while you are out and about birding. So I hope that you may consider incorporating that into your everyday birding practices. And if you do, be sure to let me know how it's actually been benefiting your life. If you've noticed any change, I would love to to get some feedback from you. So let's get into talking about ID characteristics. Now, I have basically just included the bare, bare basics. There are a lot of details about looking at birds to be able to come up with an ID on a bird, but I don't want to overwhelm you. I'm not going to go into birding by ear because that can be a little intimidating and tricky. And I may do another episode later on that's just about birding by ear. But yes, that is one component to learning how to ID a bird is by the call that they are making. So it is an important component. I'm just not including it in this episode. So let's talk about the bill or the beak of the bird. Anatomically speaking, birds have different beaks and they kind of give you an, some insight into what that bird eats. Makes sense, right? You're not going to have a hummingbird bill if you are eating meat. You have to have the right tools to be able to eat the right foods. 
being able to look at the bill and kind of have an idea of what kind of bill that is can help steer you into making a right ID on a bird. So there's different types of bills. Um, There's one that's more of like a generalist that's kind of like a crow. You know, crows will eat all sorts of different things. There's an insect catching bill, which is going to be kind of elongated with a more of a point at the end. This is going to be more of your like fly catchers, gnat catching type birds, warblers. They primarily are going to be eating insects. And so they have this kind of more sharper bill that's great for kind of poking in tree bark and uh, poking at the ground. Then there's the grain eating or seed eating bill, which is going to be more conical shaped. This is a great example of this is like our northern cardinal. That bill is great for breaking open seed. And then there's like the nectar feeding, which you can see on a hummingbird. They're specifically designed to getting into those flowers and drawing out nectar. A chiseling bill, like a woodpecker, very long and it's they have extremely strong bills because they're having to peck away in the tree bark all the time to get out those tasty insects. So look at the bill to see if you can determine what kind of food that bird might eat. What type of food a bird eats is also going to tell you where you should be seeing this bird. So if you know that this bird is going to be pecking away in tree bark, then you are going to expect to see that bird in the trees. So if you see the bird and it's fluttering over flowers, probably not going to be a woodpecker. It's going to be something different. So keep that in mind. Feet. Let's talk about feet. Feet, like bills, are designed with a purpose. Your ducks, for example, that have webbed feet, you're going to expect to see Birds that are going to be more along water to have some sort of webbing or some way that's going to help kind of propel them in water. Your birds of prey are going to have big, almost claw-like grasping feet with these long, sharp talons. They need those to be able to capture and hang on to their prey. And a lot of times especially owls, they're going to swoop down to grab something. They need to make sure that they don't mess up. So those talents have got to capture that that prey item on the first go, if at all possible. So they need to have strong, large talons, sharp talons. Next up, let's talk about colors and the behaviors that you see a bird doing. Colors are going to come into play. Now, generally, your males are going to be more vibrant colors. So I find that your male birds are going to be a little easier to learn to ID at first than the females. And that's okay. Just start with the males if you need to. Get some practice in looking at the way that the plumage is colored and pay attention to the time of year because, you know, birds are going to have different mating plumage that you'll see rather than, you know, off breeding season. Just gets more and more confusing, doesn't it? (laughs) But have no fear. 
It just takes practice. And so, you know, just take it one step at a time. Behaviors of birds will help kind of clue into what the bird is just been on basis of, is this bird on the ground? Is it in a tree? Is it just soaring? I mean, for the most part, when you think about a vulture, like a black or a turkey vulture, a lot of times you're going to see those birds just soaring in the air. Yes, you'll see them along the roads looking for some roadkill, but nine chances out of ten, we tend to recognize them because they're soaring along in the air. So paying attention to colors and behaviors will help you in the long run to determine what kind of bird you're looking at. Location and time of year are very important as well, mainly because in Texas we have two periods of time that are major migration. We've got a spring and we have a fall migration. And during those times, we're not only going to be seeing just our typical everyday resident birds, but we're going to end up getting other birds through the area that don't typically belong here. And so if it's in, say, the summertime, and you see this beautiful red bird, and you're trying to decide is this a cardinal or is it maybe a, a tanager? Chances are, well, that's not a good example because tanagers end up coming to this area in the summertime. <laughs> so let's say um, in December. In December, um, <laughs> if, we, uh, if you're looking at a beautiful red bird um, and you're trying to decide, is this a northern cardinal or a summer tanager? Well, right off the bat, you're going to be able to um, cross off the summer tanager because it's not the right time of year for a summer tanager to be here. I mean, just within the name itself, summer tanager, <laughs> it's not supposed to be here in December. Now, I suppose anything is possible. You know, nature does not always stick to a book. Um, and textbook case type scenarios. I mean, goodness, you know, scientists are still learning things about nature. But for the most part, it's safe to say a summer tanager is not going to be in Texas in December. So paying good attention to where you are and what time of year is going to help you be able to differentiate between maybe birds that look similar to you. Birding can be expensive. <laughs> I mean, let's just get down to the bare bones of it. It's it's an investment. And a lot of that investment comes from your optics, as well as maybe travel expenses. If you start going outside of Texas, you may start spending a lot more money on hotels and festivals and park entry fees, field um, tour, tourist guides. So it can get costly. Um, so we're going to, I'm going to go into some basics about binoculars, but I feel like binoculars is such a personal thing that, you know, I can give you some information, but ultimately I would really encourage you just to, if you have the opportunity, use different types of brands and models and determine what you feel like fits well for what style of birding you're going to be doing. I will say 
you do tend to get what you pay for with optics. I mean, just like cameras, the investment that you put into them, it's going to make a difference. So while one person may say, well, you know, I don't want to spend money on high-end optics. If you plan to do this hobby in the long term and really, really get into it, I would think, in my own opinion, you would eventually want to consider those high-end optics. They're just going to make life easier for you. But if this is just something that you're doing as a hobby and you're just kind of casually doing it, then that's all right. You get what whatever feels comfortable for you. There is something to be said for higher-end optics that allow for a lot more clarity and a lot more light. So keep those two things in mind when you start using different binoculars. Um, some other supplies that you might need, and, and I'll go into binoculars in a little little bit more detail in just a minute, but some other supplies that you'll want to be sure to keep on hand while you're out birding is a field guide, like an actual physical field guide, not just your phone with an app, take an actual field guide with you. Sometimes when you're out in the middle of nowhere, your phone is not going to work. Your battery may die. You may not have any access to being able to charge that phone. So take a field guide with you. Sometimes the field guides are made up, organized in a way that has just a completely different feel than the apps, and you may find that it's more comfortable for you. But always take a, a backup. It's kind of like taking a map with you or having it always in your car, even though we all have become reliant on GPSs on our phone, it's always great to have a map with you because like I said before, technology can fail you, your phone can die, you may not get service. Always great to have a backup plan. Get a backpack, something that's you know sturdy and strong and maybe even waterproof. Take a notebook with you, like a little notepad. Uh, I like to take a notepad just because I am not that great of a photographer. And so if I can't take a picture that is actually something that you can <laughs> see the bird in, I will take some notes about what what I saw. The, and I'll describe the bird on the notepad and, and just take some basic notes so that when I go back home or when I get a chance to finally sit down and look through my field guide, I've got those notes handy, even though I was not able to get a photo. And then of course, you know, have your phone with you because let's face it, it's it's a lot easier sometimes and it does make a great tool. Having a harness for your binoculars is great too. It's not mandatory, but sometimes it does make it more comfortable. Uh, I like to at least have a neck strap so that if I need both my hands, I have a way of just kind of setting my binoculars down without having to put them down on the ground or find some spot to put them safely. They can still just hang off my neck and I'll have my two hands free. But, you know, consider at least having a neck strap or get a harness to allow yourself to have both hands if you should need it. So going back to binoculars, when you're shopping for binoculars, there's going to be two numbers that you see. And the first number is going to basically be your magnification. So how many times closer is that object going to be to you when you look through the binoculars? So for example, 
one of the most common magnifications of a kind of entry or basic binocular set for new birders is going to be 8 by 42. This is a great starting point for people. The 8, that first number, is going to represent the magnification. So when you look through those binoculars, you're going to be looking at something that is 8 times closer. The 42 has to do with the objective lens. And so the objective lens is the lens that is at the very end of your binoculars when you're holding them up to your face. They're not the lenses that are touching closest to your eyes. They're on the opposite end. They're the larger lenses, and they're usually measured in millimeters. And so the objective lens, is, the size of them is going to affect uh, how much light can actually get into your binoculars. So the theory is that the larger the objective lens, the more light that can come into those lenses and the more light that you have, the more chances you'll be able to see better detail, especially on those smaller birds. And especially when you're walking through a scenario like kind of a wooded area, maybe you're walking along a trail that's in, you know, heavily dense forested area. So the light is not really coming through the trees all that great because it's too dense. So then you'll, you'll really want a pair of binoculars that can really just open up and allow as much light in as possible. Apps. There's a few of them that I use that I like, but apps are kind of like binoculars. I feel like they are a personal choice. And you may find that you're more comfortable with one over the other. So use them all. Practice with them. Find which ones work the best for you. I really prefer Cornell's uh, Merlin Bird ID app. I love this because it makes it so easy to just plug in a few pieces of data and boom, it gives you a whole list of suggested birds that you could be looking at. It gives great pictures, it gives details, it even gives calls so you can listen to them and it helps you determine you know, fairly quickly what bird you could be looking at. Another reason why I really like this app is they have recently added a component to it called the Song ID, and it allows you to record audio in the area that you are at, and it will ID the birds based off of that audio. I just think that is so amazing. It's not 100%, but it's pretty darn cool, just the, the fact that you can do that. I usually will try to double check the results that come back. Uh, I was in a state park one time and was kind of in a densely wooded area. And I think there were some kids that were screaming kind of off in the background and the audio picked that up and for whatever reason said there was a loon in the forest. Well, I know that not to be true. And so... Like I said, it's not 100% perfect. Just make sure that you double check by listening to other calls to match what it's telling you it is versus what you're hearing. Uh, there's also iBird Pro. Um, Audubon has a great app as well. 
Um, I think that would probably be my runner up of, of apps. And then there's one here that I wanted to be sure and mention. It's not for identification purposes per se, but it is something that I use to practice my ID skills. And it's kind of like more of like a game. It's called LarkWire. And this is a app that I use to practice not only visually looking at birds to identify, but they they have LarkWire has a audio component to it that you can help practice your birding by ear and getting familiar with the calls. So check that out. There is a cost to it, uh, but I do think they have a light version that you can just maybe check it out for free. I wanna dive into eBird a little bit. While eBird does have an app that users can use, I find that I enjoy using it more on my desktop. And I use eBird primarily to keep track of the birds that I have seen. So eBird isn't really used to help identify, although sometimes the information that is available on eBird can help you pin down some possible birds in the area, but it's not it doesn't work the same way as say the Merlin bird ID or the Audubon or iBird Pro that we discussed. But the reason I want to be sure and cover eBird is because this website is an extremely important one. It's through Cornell University's Lab of Ornithology and it is actually utilized for scientific research. So the data that is in there is legitimate. And I think that once a person gets more familiar with how to use it, it can just be a treasure trove of information that is available to the user. So while it can be intimidating because there is a lot of different information that you can download or, or run reports on, you know, you may want to start using it just to upload your checklists. Even just uploading a checklist can sometimes be challenging, but get a feel for it and play around with it. I might actually end up doing a whole episode on eBird just because there's a lot that that can be discussed regarding everything that's available in this particular platform. But in the meantime, just take some time to, to get acclimated to it and play around with it. Um, make sure though that when you upload your bird sightings, if you're not entirely sure that you saw that bird, just don't upload it. And here's the reason why. We want that information to be as legitimate as possible. We want that data to be as accurate and really highlight the bird species that are in and around the area that you might be birding. So if you're guessing, then you can see how that data might be skewed. 
So it's always better to err on the side of caution that if you just aren't 100% sure that that is the bird that you saw, just don't list it. Besides, you'll always have another opportunity to catch a sighting of that bird, right? So that's about it summed up in a nutshell. And there's a whole lot more information that I could talk about. But again, I, I just really didn't want to overwhelm everybody with, you know, all the different details. I mean, we can get into birding by ear. Um, we can talk about even the wing bars and if there's the presence of wing bars on a bird and if not, and uh, there's just, there's a lot more. It probably would need another podcast episode, but start with that and just practice, practice looking at the bills, practice looking at the feet, practice looking at the colors, at the behavior that the bird is doing and just make note of that. And then just don't even worry about necessarily getting an ID. Just start practicing looking at that bird, taking note of it, really paying attention to the details of that bird. And then start trying to get an ID. Baby steps. But I believe you can do it. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. My email is tmngirl zero three at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message. Give me some feedback. Tell me your birding experiences. I love getting little notes from people telling me, you know, what kind of birding they've been doing and send me your photos. If you need help with a a bird ID, I'd be happy to to help you, but just get out there and, and start practicing. And as always, happy birding. Well, that's it for this episode of Birding Joy. I hope that you gained some invaluable information. Join us next week as we dive into ornotherapy, what it is and how it can benefit your life. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, happy birding. Birding Joy is the creation of Joy Club, written and produced by Joy Club under Texas Master Naturalist Hours. For more information on the Master Naturalist program, or if you have questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit birdingjoy.org. Special thanks to Clump Creator for the intro music.